smartcast you are listening to a mint production what do investment bankers do one thing that is commonly understood about i bankers is that they get paid really well but apart from taking home hefty bonuses what do they really do to deliver that value at a fundamental level they broker deals these take many shapes and forms they could be mandated with raising funds to sell an asset to merge two companies or several variations of these what does it take to stitch together just the right kind of deal how critical are the strength of relationships for a banker how much of it is an art and how much of it is science and beyond the wizardry over financial engineering how do you deal with a promoter who's having second thoughts about selling their company just the night before the deal is due to be signed My guest today is someone who is really well placed to tell us all of this and more. Manisha Girotra is one of India's preeminent investment bankers and has had a ringside view of India's biggest deals for more than 30 years. She's currently the India CEO of Moles, a boutique but influential Wall Street investment bank. For 20 years, she used to be the CEO of Swiss banking giant UBS in India. She's a graduate of St Stephen's College Delhi and a gold medalist from Delhi School of Economics. She's a Shimla person who made it big in Bombay and a woman who made it big in the boys club of big league investment banking. Some of her big deals include the IPCL strategic disinvestment and merger with Reliance Industries, Vodafone's acquisition of Hutchinson SR, United Spirits acquisition of Whiten McKay, Hindalco's 6 billion dollar acquisition of Novellas, the carlyle group's 3 billion dollar acquisition of hexaware blackstone's acquisition of a controlling stake in ask investment managers and many many more i hope to hear from her today all about her fascinating journey as well as what lies at the heart of successful deal making hello and welcome my name is shrutijit I'm a Delhi-based journalist and editor-in-chief of Mint. Together with my colleagues at HD Smartcast, I'm launching a new podcast called The Sketch. The idea is to have conversations with my guests that will help us get to know them a little better. So I'll speak to business leaders not only about the performance of their business, but also their convictions, their method, their influences and so on. If we managed to get you to listen till the end we would have painted in your minds a sketch Manisha thanks so much for joining today and welcome to the sketch Hi SK thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here Wonderful looking forward to chatting with you about everything investment banking and your career Tell us about a heart stopping moment you've had in your career There've been plenty I think there's a heart attack every day in our world because you know as you said sometimes you're very pregnant on a transaction and either the seller or the buyer decides that you know they don't want to do a deal and then you're left holding the baby and you know you bear the brunt of it so heartwarming moments are there every day but let me tell you one personal incident which was sort of interlinked with my professional life this is a while ago this is about 14 15 years ago i ha- i had gone to london and i had to rush back to delhi because this is for the old days of disinvestment when disinvestment had just got launched if you remember by the government of india This was while I was at UBS, and basically, uh, come and pitch for the privatization of Gas Authority of India. So I taken a red eye. I was rushing into the ministry with my team, and I was also wanting to check on my daughter, who was then two or three years old, on the phone. 
So I was distracted. And as I walked into the ministry, they had a 30 foot tall glass structure, which had been temporarily put there because it was the budget season. And, you know, around budget, the finance ministry, as you know, becomes gets totally cordoned off. So they put that there so that, you know, access was limited. And I walked straight into that. And that entire glass structure fell on me. And there I was two minutes later, still really not sure what's happened. The pain hadn't hit. And, uh, you know, there were 100 people gathered around me. You know how many people there always are in these ministries. And there was complete panic and chaos. And I kept thinking to myself, but my, you know, my daughter's nanny hasn't responded. What's going on? That's how distracted I was. So anyway, amidst all this chaos, my colleagues who were panicked and saw me bleeding were like, we need to rush you. And I wasn't being allowed to rush out. And that was the funny bit because... They wanted the ministry wanted me to write in the document in the big ledger, if you know that they have that this was not this did not happen because of fault of anyone in the ministry. It was my fault that I walked into this glass structure. So I actually had to literally sign that register, which the glass into my in my arm and uh, and shoulder, uh, and then I was able to get out. And by the way, then I got those last pieces removed and I had to take a flight back to Bombay that night. I made the pitch for Gail. I wanted to make sure we won it. So that was a good thing. Wow. Uh, and then I took a flight out because my husband was flying out that night. So, you know, now that I think about it, now that I'm older, that time when you're younger, you sort of just do these things and you're like, you're in, in the moment. But now when I think about it, I'm like grateful that, you know, the glass broke on my arm and my thigh and not on my chest uh-huh. or my neck. So, yeah, so that was it's, it's a war soldier story. And then the mark still remained me. So I think this is something I'll carry to my grave. Yeah, that's the those are the war stripes of your of your career. Huh? But yeah. incredible. Um, I mean, how did your bosses or your clients react when they heard the story? I didn't make much of it, you know. I mean, you know, they were. I had to wear a few little bandages, and I got on with it. And uh, I remember telling my boss, who lives in London, about three months after it, and he was like, "This is crazy. How did you do it?" You've dealt a lot with the government. You've been involved in uh, in several uh, disinvestment uh, projects. Um, can you tell us what is different when government is on on the one side of the table uh, in terms of stitching together a deal? So I think, look, uh, you have to be more patient around the decision making because there are multiple uh, ministries involved. And I understand that now because decision making cannot be through one ministry only. This is that's just how the way government works, the concern ministry, the company, uh, the finance ministry, disinvestment ministry. Uh, I think so. it probably have to be a little more patient. You have to have a wider buy in. Uh, by the way, some of the conglomerates are similar too. So, you know, it's not as if the conglomerates are very different. Uh, it just happens to be. And by the way, multinationals too, we see that decision-making does tend to get multi-layered. So it's a multi-layered decision-making. Yeah, the, the positive is, especially when we started, the kind of scale the government offered, no other uh, private sector offered. 15 years ago, private sector didn't have the scale, if you remember, that uh, state-owned companies yeah. had. Yeah. So let's say if a Gale or an IPCL or a, a BPCL uh, was being privatized or disinvested, the scale was so large that it created a lot of excitement amongst our uh, foreign investors and clients. So, you know, while we had to be more patient, the level of excitement was very high. So, so that was the positive. Uh, the companies were very good. The governance in these companies tended to be very high. Management was good. Scale was large. So lots of excitement around it. But, you know, there, there was always a risk that the deal may not see the end of the day because, you know, decision making is multi-layered or, you know, governments could change in the middle of the process and the new government could come in with a fresh pair of eyes. So you, you, that's a risk that mm-hmm. everyone uh, does understand globally when they participate in privatizations. Mm-hmm. 
And I suppose the other factor is, uh, which makes that different from, you know, two private sector companies uh, getting involved is uh, you're taking a set of employees who are used to tenure and who are used to a sort of a safe government job and switching them into a private sector framework, uh, which is almost universally resented. Uh, you don't want to lose the safety of tenure. How do you deal with that? I mean, are clients typically concerned and do they need a swaging? So I think uh, when you say clients, if you mean buyers, you know, a lot of buyers actually respect the talent that comes out of state-owned companies. We underestimate it, right? right. The kind of experience these state-owned companies have in them, most buyers, especially if you're a foreign buyer, lack that. So right. they actually like that and retain a lot of talent. And I think as the first two or three deals got done, more comfort built around it because people realize that it's not as if private sector was you know, looking to actually crush the whole uh, ecosystem and come in with new people. People retained their job. People actually did better monetarily, you know, moved upward faster. So actually there was the success of a couple of stories led to a greater comfort around it. So, nice. uh, yeah, but initially there is there is uh, that fear and, you know, you build it into the agreements that there won't be layoffs, etc. The government did that very clearly that, you mm-hmm. know, for the first five years or three years or whatever, depending on the negotiation and every transaction, there wouldn't be any layoffs or restructuring. Yeah, and don't forget that the incoming investor who comes in sometimes also has his own business. So a lot of the people, they're able to absorb there also uh, into their own businesses. So a lot of the disinvestments that have happened, it's not as if people have been displaced in a large manner at all. Mm-hmm. And typically, I mean, not about you or your firms, but typically when the government uh, engages an iBanker, when government is your client, uh, do they pay market fees or typically people work for a discount? So look, I think no tears to be shed for investment bankers. We basically compete with each other. So I don't think it's the government which is saying, look, they have to they have to have a fair transparent process. When they shortlist bankers, then after that, they've made it clear that after the top two, three uh, are selected, then fee becomes an important criteria. It just depends on us how keen we are for the business and how we bid for it, right? So if, if we go ahead and bid low numbers because, and by the way, we are bidding those low numbers because we are seeing the scale. We are not bidding those low numbers out of, you know, the philanthropy or altruism or anything, right? We are bidding it because we are saying, look, this kind of scale it puts us on the global map. Bringing yeah. an LIC IPO puts yeah. you on the global map, right? This is exactly what happened in China 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we are doing it because it fulfills our business and puts, puts our flag on a large deal and gives us real mileage globally. So I don't think, you know, I know all of us, a lot of us come to you and say, say, oh, my God, what's happening with the fee? Frankly, we are doing it because it makes business sense in a lot of different ways. Actually, you know, when you, sorry, I'll take another second on this. When you do these IPOs, the kind of deal, uh, secondary deal flow you get, you know, when when, let's say a new place, LIC IPO or a BPCL, etc. The secondary flows you get from foreign investors on these companies then more than makes up for the initial subsidization of fees. So, uh, so don't cry for us. Got it. Manisha, could you explain for the benefit of our listeners, um, what do I bankers do? Sure. So basically, as you said in my introduction, we are an intermediary. Our job is to bring a buyer and a seller together if it's a merger and acquisition transaction uh, and see uh, you know, whether there is a meeting of minds. This could either be done through a competitive process or a bilateral discussion between a buyer and a seller, depending on what it is that the seller wants. Sometimes there is, a, there is an inbound from a buyer who thinks it's a great business, and then you go to the seller and see if there's a deal to be done. That's one part of the business. The other part of the business is basically nurturing small startup companies, helping them raise seed capital, series A, series B, and then taking them maybe to the public markets or, or doing the last strategic sale. So there's the capital markets activity, and then there is the private market activity, 
and then there is mergers and acquisitions. So broadly, that's the three streams of businesses that we work on. Right. So you you raise money from private markets. You could raise money from capital markets, which means you are taking a company public, uh, which is a very stressful and large IPO process. Or you're doing an M and A deal. That is. Or you could be helping private equity sell companies, right? Same people who bought those companies and need to exit after three to five years. So private equity, as you know, has become a large phenomenon in India in the last ten years. Private equity and venture capital. Yeah. So assist them in selling their stakes in companies that they bought. Right. And um, of these three, are IPOs particularly stressful or are, are they a lot more work? No, I think every aspect is a lot of work because it's a lot of detail, right? As I, as I always say to all the young people that only join this business if you're re- ready for the grind, because it may look glamorous from outside, but inside actually it's 20 hours of work. And right. sometimes the 20 hours of work for nine months in, the, in a year may, may result in zero, right? So it is hard work or or the IPO markets may just dry up, right? We all may have done all that we could. The founder may have done all that he could, but you know, the public markets are just not there, which is something that's happening now, as you've seen, right? So it could draw to or not. Uh, So I I don't think any part of it is difficult. Having said that, I think the the point you made, the reason IPOs are tough is because to take a private uh, company and put it in the public market is, is a very different experience for the founder, right? Yeah. If a private company, you typically have two, three investors. You'll have a board, but you'll have two, three investors. There's a lot of comfort. You do yeah. give out quarterly statements, but, you know, there's enough comfort between the investors. And the, the public market is a whole new treadmill, yeah. right? You're, you know, where the incline just keeps going on upwards every every quarter because the investor wants more and more. Uh, so, so yeah, it's if for the founder, I would say it's a very different world. And hence, it's important for an investment banker to explain to the founder what it is that he's going in for. And is the company and the management ready for it? Because then it's no longer only about the founder. You need a layer two, you need a layer three of management because the investor will want to come and meet all of those. So are you ready for that kind of governance and that kind of exposure and that kind of judgment every quarter? Only then you should go into the public markets. Mm-hmm. And I suppose with IPOs, there is also the added layer of compliance. Regulators are involved in all of that, right? Of so course. That, that adds- Absolutely. For both IPOs and MA, right? If you're doing the uh, acquisition of a listed company, there will be an open offer. You know, you saw in Wholesome, uh, on Buja, where Adani is now recently by announced that there will be two open offers. So there's SEBI involved, then there's CCI involved uh, for, for competition reasons, there's RBI involved. So regulation is a big part. And as you know, world over, regulation is only getting bigger and bigger, just given how big companies are getting, scales are getting so big yeah. that regulation tends to be looking at everything more closely. So we have to be very much abreast of all the issues and guidelines and make sure that, you know, we partner with good lawyers so that we are always uh, on the right side of law. Manisha, from the time you started, I mean, as you said, the landscape is evolving, constantly changing, you know, regulators are uh, much more involved and so on. Uh, But tell us what are the fundamental ways, uh, in what are the fundamental ways has the business changed and has... Uh, you know, the role of an iBanker and the expectations from clients, etc. changed from the time you started and, and to now? So, as I say, the more things change, the more they remain the same. <laughs> the same. So, you know, the, the human nature doesn't change. The, in our business, there's a, there is a IQ part and there's an EQ part, right? The business of business hasn't, hasn't changed. Uh, the fact that, you know, you need to do these things with empathy, uh, transparency, build confidence and faith with a company because at the end of the day that's what this is about if you're asking someone to take their company public or you're asking someone to sell their company they need to trust you that you know you're not going to just do it because you're going to make a fee of it you're doing this because you think this is the right outcome for the business so i think those bits have remained the same 
what's changed a lot and which is why what i think is much more challenging for the younger people is that industries are disrupting daily when i started my career if i knew five or six industries chemicals agri you know it services i it was fine you know i didn't have to keep on reinventing myself and you know rereading and re you know figuring out what is happening now there is so much tech that is disrupting business models that you know you, what is relevant today may not be relevant 2 years from now that basically makes you recalibrate your advice to your client right because you know you you're in this business for a long term and he's going to remember what you told him 2 years ago or her 2 years ago so i think that's what's changed and i think that's what very difficult for the youngsters because you know you really have to be constantly on your feet because every industry is changing and it's not easy to keep pace right if you're in one particular industry as a corporate person you know you know enough but we are we are working across 10 industries in the morning we'll be maybe talking to a startup in tech in the evening we may be talking to a traditional company in the cement business right but you see how in the in the cement business two things are changing thanks to esg etc and you know people are saying we don't want to be in this sector so things are changing so rapidly uh, from an industry point of view that that i think that's what makes the job of an investment banker harder today than it did 20 years ago and the second thing is information right you and i were talking about this earlier the kind of access to information that everyone has you as an investment banker aren't bringing that unique perspective because mm. you know information is now available every research report everything is available on the net to you yeah. so what you bring now is more thought leadership you need to have read through everything thought through what you're going because you can't regurgitate what's written in a report because you have to assume that the client has read as much if not more than you because he's in that industry so no. very important to you know put your strategic hat on and go in with sensible ideas otherwise people don't have mind share everyone's busy and everyone's in a rush today and it's a very competitive business today that that's another thing it's much more competitive today than it was 30 years ago it's interesting i mean i was just thinking as you were speaking you have probably worked uh, you might have had many instances where you worked with two generations in a family and the second generation in terms of their profile they typically would have gone to an elite university overseas they would have had many of them might have even worked at a wall street firm or some kind of uh, you know at a consulting firm or so on and and they probably have a lot more familiarity with how business is done in those environments they certainly have a lot of access to information are they typically more demanding than their um, their fathers or mothers of the previous generation so you know in a funny sort of way the founder who set up the business who may not even be as sophisticated as you said can be very demanding because you know the company is his baby over and above everything else it's his passion and you know he works 24 times 7 on it so i don't underestimate the founder who has set up the company because you know um, they 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 they're very sharp they haven't got to where they have got to by just not understanding things or you know being aware Yeah. I think the they they have the they have the war stripes like you do. <laughs> But the next generation I think to your point brings in a, a lot of empowerment what I see is that they actually empower management teams more. They may not want to they may not have the hunger to build the company at the scorching pace that their father or mother may have. Mm-hmm. But I think what they bring is that they bring governance they bring management because as you said they're more aware of how companies you know work globally. So in a way I think they get the company more ready for the next generation and more resilient across generations because i think they don't in a way a founder can cling on to a company much more than he or she should be while the next generation doesn't because they're able to step back they're born into into wealth so to say yeah. uh, so they're not as as paranoid and they're able to actually for the third generation build a more sensible business mm-hmm. uh, if they are some of them are not interested in which case i think a lot of companies have now created a trust structure and independent and you know independent management teams but if yeah. they're interested some of them i uh, i find very promising for the next next uh, 
stage of uh, development of the company right tell us about some of the psychological hacks of your uh, of your industry i mean i'm imagining that when you're closer to a deal or when you're close to a deal and and think of a typical uh, say bombay promoter who is about to sell their business and you use the word paranoid i know many of them are, can be very paranoid um they probably it's probably a period of immense stress for them they probably have second thoughts am i getting in a sufficient value is my you know um all of this is probably going on and and it is quite likely that you are among the people they keep talking to um you know so you probably almost have to act like their shrink or a counselor to them through that period um one is that the case and two what are the typical psychological hacks that uh, in your industry that are known and are used in such situations so look you know after being 30 years in the business uh, i set up ubs i set up molus and i tend to be so possessive about uh, these names you know these are not my organizations these right. are big global brands molus is set up by my boss ken molus it's not a but i feel possessive i having set these up and i feel possessive and passionate about these businesses right yeah. uh, so i can understand where these people come from they have started these businesses from scratch and you know you and i both know we've been in this business long enough that if you've survived for 15 20 years in a tough environment like india you know you've been through a lot so you know i can i can understand when they're parting with something like that is literally like parting with a baby absolutely. and you know you you're abs- now and now in the wisdom of years i can see that you know maybe 20 years ago you would have you would ask me this question i would have said come on 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 these multiples you're getting in this deal it can't get better but i think with mm-hmm. age comes wisdom and i realize that why it is hard to let go of the business sometimes maybe even to the detriment of the business right it has happened but uh, i i understand and i respect that and i think very important for every investment banker to uh, be always honest to your client because you know if you feel at the end of the day he's getting the jitters for the right reasons you should pull back the transaction maybe in the short term it will hurt your franchise all the effort you put in but look in the long term something else will evolve out of that or to that opportunity and you know that's the reputation you build in the market that you're not a hustler who's just trying to get an outcome for the sake of an outcome and believe me all these things spread right you know it your business and my business right if you're just hustling and just putting out stories which you know without verifying that will spread right similarly in my business it spreads yeah. so stay true to it because you know the the founder has built this with a lot of effort and if you feel he's he or she is getting short change tell him that and maybe two years later and a lot of times this has happened and two years later we've gone and sold that business at 4x 5x trust the instincts of the founder if you think he's right if you think he's just being paranoid then say that but if you think you know the markets are not there or you know this buyer is taking advantage of the fact that he's the only game in town mm-hmm. and if there is no pressure there is no debt that has to be paid etc etc you know then say fine let's just step back for two years and let let business go on and and come back but yeah it's a it's a fine line uh, it's tough because you know a lot of times it's easier to say look you must do it and you know world will come to an end if you don't do it and etc etc but yeah. in my experience wherever i have been honest and said look let's just stay the course those things have actually developed into bigger more meaningful relationships and better business model for us mm-hmm. and are there um, a lot of mind games that are played say during negotiations because value you know i mean it's one thing i suppose like beauty uh, there is a lot of value that is in the eye of the beholder or you know it's one thing to assign multiples and you know i bankers have a lot of methodology discounted cash flow and all of that but we see that beyond a point all of that is um you know one method and you see widely varying uh, numbers eventually getting um, ascribed to assets 
so how do you um, how do you negotiate how do you really assess the other person's you know what is in the in the mind of the person on the on the other side of the table so you're absolutely right negotiation is both an art and a science the science is all the hygiene factors you mentioned the five year financial model the discounted cash flows the multiples etc etc but more than that it's an art it depends on how, what is the scarcity value of the asset or is the potential buyer really keen on coming into india or really keen in scaling up his or her business is it very difficult to do greenfield in the sector that we are looking at and hence this opportunity is very attractive to the incoming investor all of those things help to then add on so the the science becomes the base and over and above that the kind of competitive scenario that you can create are there four or five bidders vying for it we've had situation where we have two bidders sitting in two different rooms right till the last day vying for the business and literally you know valuations are going up one turn a day uh, if not one two turns in a day you know um, because that's how much they both wanted so it depends on how you how competitive you can make the process uh, and you know and, and and hence get your if you're representing the seller and hence get them a, a strong outcome in your career when you look back and you probably started working on smaller deals and then you graduated um, to bigger and bigger deals and was there any point when you were walking into a deal or a mandate and you felt intimidated that man this is a really big deal and this is super complex um, you know was there ever such a moment so i've never felt intimidated i've always felt very excited i think what it is is that i think that's the one thing that worked well for me is that uh, and you know my ceo of mine at ubs used to say this to me that you know the good thing about it is that you don't get intimidated going into any boardroom uh. so but yeah excited yes a lot of transactions as you got into the bigger ones so they were very exciting right because as you said for a small town person who started off thinking that she'll probably be a corporate banker and lend Yeah. Uh, some uh, you know money to the bank to, to some corporates to then do these large m and a meaningful which which really changed the course and destiny of a company absolutely really and in some ways even indian businesses right i mean i remember the bharti zain deal i mean it was a it was a big deal not just in terms of the quantum or the size of the deal but what it represented for indian business you know cross border ambitions absolutely. Yeah. absolutely which is what i always say and that's when michael's job is easy you know you do the deal you go away but the real grind is for the corporate who then has to integrate the company and that's an important point too which you mentioned right you must when when you're doing an acquisition or advising a company you must also think about is this going to integrate culturally with a with the uh, with with your with your buyer right because a lot of mna falls apart because the two companies are just so culturally apart that you know they just can never come together so that's right. an important criteria if you're representing a buyer or a seller to transparently tell uh, the your client that look you know culturally you seem to be very far apart uh, and you know i is is this something that you are going to be able to live with uh, is an important right all these criteria become very important other than the usual multiples manisha just to step back for a moment into the profession and away from the the field that you play in um do you have idols in your uh, in your profession do you have any role models and and tell us about some story that you've heard um about them uh, that have really like you know some kick ass deal making story that have really uh, inspired you So I think uh, in terms of uh, role models or people who inspire me uh, you know in the corporate world you meet a lot of people that you know because this investment making is an industry where at a very young age you meet uh, promoters and founders of large companies you you know you, you tend to meet the best right and at the best when they are discussing things that are strategic to them and that's how you see how their mind works and you know that really inspires you so whether it's anarayana murthy ananda nilakani you know sunil mittal mukesh amani they're just amazing thinkers mm-hmm. uh, and the eye for detail i think you learn that at a very young age that 
the eye for detail that these people have matches their strategic thinking and their and you know their ability to work hard is unparalleled so i think that inspires you in terms of bankers i think my current boss ken molis really inspires me and you know that's the reason i joined him right i mean i think from a large bank to go into something which was then just a little startup i was essentially taking a bet on him and you, you know the one thing i like about him is that he's a, of course he's very well read he's always happy to jump onto a plane he's a deal junkie all that is great but i think what i like about him is his honesty and transparency both with clients and with colleagues and that's why i joined him you know i think uh, at a point when these large organizations were getting very political can basically came across as someone who can tell you that this is what i can do this is what i can't do it it's an american way of doing it and second i think that's just how he is and that's how he builds loyalty from all of us so i think that's what inspired me because in our world you meet a lot of people who may say things which they don't mean but he didn't do that i, mean, I just met him recently uh, in a meeting in dubai and he's still continuously reading something and trying to understand some tech from his children some crypto stuff from his son and you know like this is good right you know you constantly keep on your toes So yes he inspires me and the indian entrepreneurs a lot of them inspire me just just by the fact that they never rest on their laurels they're always working so hard and as i said victory belongs to the most tenacious right so and these guys have shown you that that you know you always have to be ahead of your game always have to be worried about what the competition is doing or if you want to stay uh, top of your game uh-huh. Uh, you've done many cross-border deals. Tell us about how the perception about India and Indian businesses have evolved uh, among global investors. So it was so other than the uh, you know issues I mentioned in terms of good management, you know empowered management. I think what makes me really proud is today I can go and sell India for that you know you can come and invest in India because it's a five trillion dollar economy with four hundred million consumers, increased buying power. daily number of millionaires billionaires being created daily unicorns being created and come in and set up businesses in india for indians because indians today want more more products more you know becoming bigger consumers bigger travelers more discerning consumers want better education for their children even rural india has so much uh, you know more more uh, wealth than it did and disposable income than it did before Uh, so invest in india for india not not india as an export market and not india because we are great in it services which we will export to the world and that personally makes me very proud because you know it's time we sell india for india right and okay. uh, uh, rather than just saying we are an export hub or a export destination or a cheap labor economy Hmm. But Manish, it seems to me uh, I could be wrong about this, but just as an observer, it seems to me that cross-border deals, and especially ambitious cross-border deals, outbound from India, haven't they come down? I mean, the period that you're talking about, Bharti Zain, Tata Chorus, Tata JLR, uh, there were many, many of these Hindalco uh, novellas, of course. But in the last few years, um, or say post 2015, uh, while Indian economy has grown. um those kind of big ambitious um you know existential kind of deals uh, appears to have come down isn't it yeah and the answer is in your question you actually said it it's exactly what i said about the foreign investors when I, mean, i speak to these large promoters and i say you know we try and uh, tell them about global opportunities they say today the opportunity in india is so large mm. and it's a market we understand so much better that the roe the return on equity 
of investing in India is going to be much higher for me, right? Look at Reliance, a full geo came out of it, right? Uh, you know, or, 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 or a Bharti, which basically became the second largest place. So a lot, lot of capital that got invested in India because it understands India better and is you know able to create scale uh, that they weren't able to do earlier. There wasn't that scale available, right? Because of all the reasons that we discussed, the purchasing power wasn't there. But today it's there. And today the Indian founder is saying, why not I invest in my country rather than create a global player, go into markets, which I don't understand, where obviously it's going to take me longer. Here I'm going to basically get much faster returns in an environment that I understand better. So, so yeah, absolutely right. So cross-border is now happening for very different reasons, for skills, for technology. For example, an IT services company wants a cloud company. They go out sure. and buy it. Sure. Or you know, a pharma company wants to go and buy into markets in Europe and US. So those kind of strategic ones are happening. But is, yeah, is the, are there any ones that hap- are going to happen like the ones we saw 10 years ago? I don't think so. Everyone wants to put their capital into India. Mm-hmm. But private investment overall is actually not going up, right? I mean, I mean, maybe in terms of deals, uh, those are happening. And I, but I don't know if you if you look at the um, the volumes in terms of the money that gets put into these deals, are those growing year after year? Are are those and and are those substantially more now than um, what it used to be previously? So you're absolutely right. I think what you saw in the last eight to 10 years is a cleaning up of balance sheets, right? So Mm. a lot of corporates that you and I grew up, uh, you know, marketing to or pitching to or meeting with don't exist anymore, right? The leverage that happened, the banks held back because their balance sheets were getting cleaned up. So private investment did fall. So in that process of the cleanup and, you know, the whole bankruptcy court getting uh, empowered and executed, we, we did lose out on a capex cycle. In that period, what happened? Basically, private equity and venture capital came in and took the place and came in and acquired those companies, right? But that was existing existing companies. It wasn't incremental investments that were happening. Existing companies were being bought out by foreign capital. So more foreign capital coming in, good for India, but no incremental capacities coming in because incremental capacities would come in only if the private sector picked up on terms of investment. Now that's different. And the other thing that's different is that unlike 20 years ago, where private sector said, look, it's so cheap for me to do greenfield. Why would I go out and acquire a business? Today, private sector is saying, I'll go and acquire. So MA, which for the last 10 years, you would have seen about 60 to 70% of MA dominated by private equity and venture capital. Mm-hmm. Going forward in the next five, 10 years in India, because the balance sheets have become healthier, companies have become larger, you'll see about 50-50 uh, in favor of the corporates. You'll see corporates coming back. Mm-hmm. And 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 how do you see the now that the global and uh, the global level liquidity is beginning to uh, get tightened? How do you see the IPO pipeline in India playing out in this year? And so also foreign investment coming into India. So I think uh, to answer your question on foreign capital, I think private equity and venture capital still has a lot of capital with them. A lot of the large private equity is still raising capital. There's enough liquidity. There is a pause. There is not a halt. Because of what's happening, there is so much volatility in the world, food crisis, energy crisis, war, geopolitics, inflation, money being pulled out that investors are at this moment in a in a, in a stage of pause. They're like, let the dust settle down, let valuations get better. And then a market like India, which is today even growing the fastest, is not a market you can ignore. So will the, will the pace of capital reduce? Yes. Will the flows change and go away from India like in the older days? No. So I'm confident on that. 
IPOs, I believe, is a different story. I think there was too much froth in the market. There was too much liquidity. And basically, half-cooked ideas were also going into the public markets. And, you know, people were just burning capital to show growth and basically get a multiple on their growth and list. That, I think, needed to be changed because there was too much excitement. A new sector was getting created in India in the startup world, which is great. But I think the excitement, everyone got carried away in the excitement and the business models, which were not validated, were also coming in. Which were not ready for the public markets, so that's changed. That will change much business models, which are you know either have scale or have a differentiated idea or use capital efficiently, have a path to profitability, are the ones which will come in the market, and that's good because those are the resilient business models which are required for the next five years of you know potential recession slash slowdown in the world, which will basically then last, be resilient and make money for investors. So I know at this point, the pain is enormous and maybe the IPO markets will look anemic. But for the long term, this is much better for all investors, especially with so much domestic money coming in, retail money coming in. You don't want investors to lose money. And, you know, those are the investors who go away. They go away for a long time. So as much as the change is uncomfortable, I'm very happy with this change. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about relationships and the role of relationships in iBanking. Um, you have a reputation for enjoying good relationships with many of India's top business families. And it's generally thought of as an advantage. But I'm wondering if it's also a double-edged sword in the sense that while if you enjoy the trust of a promoter that might lead them into hiring uh, you or your firm uh, when they need to sell or buy something, does it also become that you get identified with, you know, uh, oh, this person or this firm is close to X and Y and therefore in our business, we don't want to involve them. Are there cliques of those sorts or do you end up getting, you know, labeled into camps or cliques? Um, how does that whole whole uh, situation work? It's a good question. It could be, you know, it could be that uh, you're identified with one one promoter and if there's a lot of competition between the two, between two or three, if it's a close, it's a closed sector, like let's say if it's a pharma IT services, there's so many companies, it doesn't matter. But let's say there's a sector where there's just three to five players. Mm. Then yes, there could be a, a situation where you yourself forget forget the client don't want to go on both sides because you know too much on one side on and then, one side, yeah. you know it's this then it's not correct to go to the other side you yourself feel uncomfortable and that's globally that happens it's not just to india that globally some banks get identified on one side of the fence or the other side hmm. and then you make your bed that way in in sectors which are very competitive and sectors which have fewer players so you see that in india and you see that globally and uh, you just have to respect that as a banker and decide that look this is where we are going to make our bed. Because in that kind of situation, if you try and play both sides, inevitably, as you said, you'll just fall out with both. Mm-hmm. And how different is the role of relationships uh, in, say, low context markets like, like say, North America, uh, vis-a-vis high context, um, very culture dominated, very uh, business families dominated kind of a business landscape like India? So, you know, look, as I said, our business is as much about EQ as IQ. So relationships matter everywhere. Everywhere. Of course, your ideas matter, your strategic thinking matters. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is a business of trust. Trusting someone to sell your company, you're trusting someone to go raise capital, you know, you're trusting someone to buy a company which may, you know, which could actually as a CEO potentially derail your job if it's not the right acquisition. So trust plays a very important part. Uh, and, you know, I have to believe that A, you will keep my confidence and B, that you will do what's right for me if I'm going to hire you and engage you as a banker. So it's no different in India than anywhere else in the world. And when you work um, in a cross-border fashion, 
Uh, talk us through what are the cultural differences uh, in, say, dealing with investors from America, Europe, vis-a-vis Japan, China. Uh, what are the things to be cognizant of? So I think um, Asians are the same, as you rightly said, uh, you know, whether it's India, Japan, we're very relationship driven. So when there's an incoming investor from Japan or anywhere other, any of the other Asian markets, they do give credence a lot to the relationship that they build with the promoter, even if it's a, it's a buyout, right? Even if there's even if there's a Japanese incoming investor and an Indian outgoing investor, just the fact that do we get along with the seller? Do we have a good relationship? All that matters. The Western world tends to be more transactional, right? Is it a good business? If if it's a let's say an acquisition opportunity, then is is it a good business? Good management? Are those hygiene boxes ticked? The other thing is Indian founders can work twenty four times seven Monday through Sunday. Mm-hmm. Mm. While the West companies, the weekends are very respected, right? Yeah, so yeah. I always say that an Indian founder uh, wins only on that basis that he's willing to, he only warms up at 6 p.m. on a Friday evening on the negotiation while the, yeah. while the incoming investor probably done by Friday and saying, can I take my flight back to meet my kids? So I think, yeah, so I think that that's another cultural thing that, you know, we just, we, we get so passionate about our business that Monday through Sunday, we can just give it 24 times 7. It's, it's a founder thing. While um, global companies tend to be more professionalized, multinational, etc. So, so that's the other things. The one thing that was great about global companies, which Indian companies are now learning, is just the governance, right? Strong managements, empowered managements, don't have to keep running back to check with the founder, which in the earlier days in India used to always be the case. None of, even, even on big things in documents, shareholders agreement, share purchase agreement, everything if the founder was not there, the management team wasn't empowered to agree on any of the variations that a buyer or seller may suggest. Well, you know, you don't see that the case in um, in global companies. They tend to be very empowered by the board and nobody is second guessing the other person. So that's something that Indian companies have now learned, are learning, still work in progress. While multinationals tend to really empower their professionals. Uh, Manisha, what has been the most challenging deal of your career? Every deal is challenging. Uh, I don't think... Uh, That's a very diplomatic answer. Uh, I'm surely, surely there have been, there has been one that made you pull your hair out, isn't it? Uh, no, I think, uh, look, uh, in the initial part, doing the government transactions used to be very difficult, very challenging because, as I said, there were six to seven ministries. And, you know, if you were doing a, a sale of MTNL shares or, or a Gale shares, you know, you go on an extensive roadshow, this uh. price discovery, book building happens. But even after that, you need a buy-in on from about seven or eight ministries so i think that or, or when i sold ipcl the kind of you know uh, uh, buy-in that you had to do really tested your patience as a young person right so i think i, I learned a lot of patience there uh, so not pulling your hair out but i think really testing that you know you, you need to be patient you need to respect everyone's point of view diverse point of views and only then it will lead to a good outcome so i think that taught me uh, the initial deals of disinvestment taught me a lot of patience after that, of course, a lot of deals when you're selling them, you know, when the promoter, like you said earlier, suddenly torpedoes on the last day or says, you know, this is my lucky number. You need to add 20 crores <laughs> more because it just adds up to nine and nine is my lucky number. And, you know, the multinational incoming investor gets fully rattled because they've got a board approved and they can't go back to the board and say, now you have to add some $10 million extra because it's the lucky number or something. And they would just throw these curveballs last minute, you know. Has so, this actually uh, happened? Is that a real story? Oh, of course. This is an absolute real story that we have pretty much agreed to sign the documents and everyone's landed up here and we are having the signing ceremony and suddenly I get a message saying, no, but we forgot to tell you that you need to add like $12 million or $13 million or even larger numbers in certain cases because that's our lucky, adds up to nine or 11, whatever, seven lucky number. 
and you know board, multinational work like that because they've got the board signature and come off and they don't even understand it so so yeah so a lot of those things have happened with numerology and you know some other astrology or you know oh we can't sign it on this day because you know it's not a lucky day now we have to wait another two weeks for this so they get it's very difficult to explain to a western client that this is genuinely an issue you know there are genuinely dates and times and you know amounts that we consider lucky and you know you need to adhere to that and that comes always tends to come at the last minute i don't know why there have been situations where you know i've had a global client take off take off on a flight from the us and suddenly the seller has said tell him not to land i will only sign four weeks from now because it's now amavas or something or it's pre navratri and we have to sign in navratri and and they get very rattled right because they've already told the ceo told the board i'm signing and bringing this company home so yeah all those things and then you have to bear a brunt because you know the the buyer gets suspicious that there's you know there's some horse trading happening here but it's not horse trading it's just genuinely how we believe in these things so have there been any instance where you discovered things about your client that you didn't previously know and and caught you completely unawares yeah many times many times when you do diligence you find issues that you know especially for the ipos as you said mm. uh, you know there could be times when you find that the books are not really uh, as transparent as they should be in which case you have to at that point transparently tell the founder that you're not ready for the public market just mm. you know mm. you need to set your house in order because it's fine even if we take you to the market and let's say because the markets are frothy the ipo will get done in the in two quarters one quarter the auditors will raise red flags and you'll have to pull off the deal right or you'll you'll get into more trouble uh, if the transaction has got done so mm-hmm. you, you have to be very very clear on that there is no margin for error because not only does it affect the founder reputationally it affects you as a banker reputationally because yeah. you know brought it and you know that's something that stays with you more than anything else you're only as good as your last deal and you know you're only as good as your reputation mm-hmm. so i think um, that's really important that you basically uh, point out and tell the founder that it's for their good that this gets corrected because while our reputation will get sullied theirs will get damaged forever right because you know we we may recover after one or two years or one or two yeah. quarters whatever yeah. the case may be but they will not recover from it right and in today's regulatory environment you can have much larger implications how is it different to work for a boutique firm like molas uh, compared with a much larger firm like say ubs So I think uh, uh, when when I left UBS and came, it was a startup. So you know, uh, I set up more or less just a computer and a laptop in the office. Nice. So it's it's, uh, it's both re-energizing as well as it's it, it tells you who your true friends are. Mm. It resets your ego and your uh, etc. Et because you know you now realize that you know you're only as good as your next business, and you know there isn't a parade of twenty people internally, including learning how to do your own IT. Because you know, when I was at UBS, I just had to you know call on the intercom and maybe ten people come in here. I was doing my own thing. So I think while it's re-energizing, it's also and reinvigorating. It also resets you. Very important in life, uh, and uh, it's harder. Uh, but I think what I liked is that because when you join something so young, you're all all working towards a common goal. There aren't any politics. There aren't any fights between infighting that you know. Oh, this profit, this this revenue is mine. That revenue is yours. they're all building towards a common cause which is like let's make the firm greater because only if the firm becomes greater we become greater right so that's what's energy and that's no different from how anyone feels about a startup right when they go from a large institution i think the bureauc- the fact that you leave behind the bureaucracy is is really the best high of uh, joining a startup and then and then growing with it right and today molises uh, revenues in terms of what we do in mna etc is larger than a lot of the big banks like city deutsche barclays hsbc in what we do and uh, so that that's you know it's gratifying to be part of that journey it's always good to be part of a growth journey than a degrowth journey right mm-hmm. 
you've spoken in past interviews about uh, facing sexism in your career. Um, can you talk us through it and have things gotten better now? Yeah, so a lot of sexism, I think, when I started off, literally from people not wanting to make eye contact with me, mm. not wanting to shake my hand, I would be the head of the team that goes in. But even then, when I'm presenting, like I'm talking to you, the person wouldn't make eye contact with me, they'd make eye contact with the people around me who were men. Mm. So, you know, it was, it, so it started literally things like that, because you, it was like, how can a woman be talking about things like cash flow, balance sheets? you know, industry trends, etc. It just wasn't something that a male ear was used to listening to, right? Yeah. Got from there to even more stark things like, you know, people making making comments or, or, you know, behaving in a way that they shouldn't be behaving uh, with me because people just took me lightly, uh, you mm. know, and, and thought this is a woman, you could flirt with her, you could say mm. things to her, uh, which are completely out of line. Uh, you know, uh, and at that point, I think the awareness wasn't also so much as it is today. So you would sort of think it's okay, or you would feel embarrassed. The worst was I would feel that maybe I did something wrong, or maybe I dressed wrongly, or maybe I, you know, you, you were tuned to think like that. Uh, and I wouldn't even talk about that when I came home, because I felt so embarrassed about it. Right. Um, uh, and, they, you know, internally, they weren't the kind of HR in the organizations where you could go and talk about these things, you pretty much were like, you know, on your own. So I faced a lot of that. Things have the things changed? Yes, I think a because just organizations are becoming more gender neutral. They want to retain women talent. Uh, second, more women coming into the workforce. You know, you have a community around there you that you can talk about. Third, more role models that you can go and talk to and more mentors you can talk about. We had none of that, right? Who could I go and talk about these things to? I would only talk to my father who would say, look, don't worry, there's a paradigm shift happening for men also. They're not used to you coming and talking. Be patient. If I would tell him the lighter things. I wouldn't tell him the things where sure. he would behave untowardly. Yeah. I felt embarrassed yeah. because I, you know, I would think that's wrong, something wrong with me. But I think I think that's changed because you now have a community around you. Mm -hmm. Would I like the pace to change more? Yes, of course. I would like people to be more aware, more respectful of women try and retain women talent more, you know, there to be a much wider buy-in. But I think that's a societal thing also Shri, that needs to be changed, right? I mean, I think we're a patriarchal society and that's changing slowly. But definitely, I see the younger generation more confident, more aware. Social media also empowers you more. So I'm seeing a lot of hunger amongst the young girls, a lot of confidence, which I didn't see in my generation. We sort of, you know, tiptoed around these things, felt embarrassed. Mm -hmm. This generation doesn't. I think the woman is more confident. I would like the male mindset to change faster. Right, right. And are there a lot of um, young women coming into the profession? And uh, do they approach you for advice? You know, and do you talk them through uh, a lot of these these kind of issues as well? Yes, a lot of young women joining the workforce. The challenge is that we're not able to retain enough retain women, them. Mm. right? As they get to the mid-level, the patriarchy of the family takes over that, look, why do you want to work this hard? You have children, you have aging parents, your husband's doing well now, the income of the family is better, Aren't you better off doing maybe just taking a back seat for the next 10 years or then taking an easier job? So we get, you, when we start, especially me at Molis has been passionate about keeping the workforce 50-50. Mm -hmm. But if you look at my look at my workforce five, seven years into it, it's skewed to 70-30. Uh, if not 80, 20. And that's wow. despite, you know, working from home, flexible working hours. It's just that this, the home, home just pulls you back, right? That, you know, mm. why do you want to do this? And most women fall for that, unfortunately. So, mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think a lot more needs to be done to retain talent. Young, yeah, at the, at the starting, I would say the girls are much more ambitious than the men on what they want to do with their careers. Hardworking, giving it 20 hour days with a smile, you know, but I think, 
the retention is poor in our industry mm-hmm. and even in the broader banking uh, industry um, there used to be a wave of uh, top women talent um, you know the uh, the icici uh, yes. executives are best known but even at kotak uh, there used to be shanti akampram falguni nayar and there were many others uh, today when you see and and at one point you had multiple women ceos of of major banks and today i think apart from zarin darwal of standard there aren't uh, many see women ceos of major league banks and even i think in the tier 2 uh, i mean the second tier of management there are um, several um, but what is your assessment of the scene um, has that wave sort of petered out um, what is the reason for uh, the situation today it looked very promising a while back it looks like it hasn't quite panned out that way right yes you're right i mean it did look very promising right and i think financial services led the way for the other industries right Absolutely. every other industry would say how do we emulate what icici etc have done and then these then not only did these women do well at icici they went across different companies and you know uh, uh, different sectors so it was very promising as you said i think at the level 2 level 3 there are good women and in another 4 5 years you'll see you'll see more women talent come to the top but i think also what's changed is that is no longer financial services that is the role model across consumer and tech companies i'm seeing a lot of women talent uh, yeah. and and you'll see that you know you'll see in the next 3 4 years a lot of the a uh, lot of these companies in the tech world especially global multinationals etc will be headed by indian ceo women because i'm seeing that on the chats where i'm mentor, mentoring a lot of young girls not just young it's mid level it's mid to senior level a lot of them are women and and maybe also it's because financial services as an industry is losing a lot of the glamour that it had for my generation mm-hmm. so you know so if my generation was either you join manufacturing or if you're an engineer you're going to become a techie or you're a doctor or you join banking not mm-hmm. the case anymore or you join journalism right was one of the greatest careers today is not the case today there are enough other options a lot of startups right or that people that women want to set up on their own so i think that's also a reason that you're not seeing it because not all the best are not joining just financial services so right, you see a change right. across sector but yeah. yes but but i think that there was a wonderful era of india where you had so many women and you know i, I really wish we can get that back soon but i'm i'm not positive you'll see that kind of women talent in financial services from what i'm seeing Mm-hmm. So interesting, um, Manisha. One of the last things I want to ask you is: uh, you work on the one end of the spectrum with large conglomerates, and on the other, I mean, there's a lot of legacy heritage uh, concerns about legacy and so on. There, um, perhaps also a lot of baggage in terms of how they work. And on the other, you have uh, startups who have, you know, very founder-led, very new, quite unaware about a lot of the ways of the business, um, but. growing at a scorching pace um uh, can you talk us through what this duality is like and how different do you have to approach um, both of these categories of businesses yeah i think uh, very different i think uh, the old traditional business understands the understood the fact that business is about cash flows ebitda you know building a business that lasts that is resilient preserving capital i think what happened in the startup world a lot of it led by you know young people and fueled by a lot of liquidity that you know growth for the sake of growth became a priority in the last few years and i think that's the lesson that now the next few or five years the startups that will survive will learn that capital efficient businesses which return capital to shareholders and make money why does a corporate exist it exists to make money for its shareholders and that's that is a lesson that has to now come into the startup world because there's no difference in a tech world from anywhere else right 
So you may have a great business model, you may have a great shareholder, but you have to return money back to investors and shareholders. And and, and that's the reason why corporates exist is, is a lesson that these startups will learn. And But, you know, having said that, the energy that these startups brought was needed to, you know, create this whole new sector, right? These are people who had, who were going to be potential employees, right? And they became employers. And you needed that kind of confidence, flamboyance, if I may say so, to create what they created, that kind of courage or conviction at 23, that you're going to go and create the largest, you know, hotel reservation company or the largest, uh, uh, you know, media company or the largest, uh, you know, SaaS company. It needs a lot of confidence. And, you know, maybe some of that was needed. But I think the next stage now as maturity comes is to basically revert to mean. The pendulums had swung one way. Now it needs to come somewhere in the middle to have a more sensible business model. And those are the ones that will then last for the next 20 years, 10, 20 years. The others will just fall off or get consolidated. What do you want for yourself and for Moelis, um in the next decade? For myself, I think, you know, I, 30 years I've done this. So I now I'm much more passionate. Uh, while I'm passionate about my business and this is my career, I think I'm much more passionate about things I also do outside of work, you know, in terms of personal hobbies, in terms of the things that I do for the girl child. I have a school that I've set up for the girl child. Is it in I, Shimla? Uh, this is in, uh, no, in UP. I read you saying somewhere that one thing you want to do is to go back and set up a school. We basically got delayed because of the pandemic. So hopefully in the next 12 months, when we talk again in 12 months, it will be up and running. There's one in UP. Where where in UP is it? Uh, This is near Lucknow. So this is a primary school. Yes, yes, yes. Just 100 girls. Nice. So, so that's one I run. And the second one is uh, the one that will come in similar. So I'm now passionate about these things. Uh, and, you know, spending more time with family as parents are aging, etc. So I think those are those are things I value more. Uh, I want to do more for I absolutely want to dedicate the next 15, 20 years of my life for doing whatever I can for the girl child. And mm. the, the, when I say girl child, I just don't mean the girl child. I also mean in terms of mentoring more women to enter the workforce and stay in the workforce. It really mm. upsets me when women leave for the wrong reason. Mm. You leave for the right reasons. You don't like the business. You know, you yourself want to take a backstage. Perfectly fine. Sure. But when you leave for reasons outside you know uh, which some of which we discussed you know uh, because of outside influences that's something that i want to work for so those are the two areas that i'm passionate about and whatever little i can from my experience tell them that look these phases will pass these are phases when it, it is tough as a woman right we tend to be emotionally involved so you, know, you feel guilty and you know it's a guilt that always stays with us but these are things kids grow up and you know actually become great role models for your kids who see that if, especially for your daughters who see that you know your mom you as a mom have done everything and balanced everything and still achieved a career it actually in an odd way that's what stays with the child more than the 24 times 7 that you've stayed with them as when they were a toddler right and you know in terms of this phenomena of women leaving their professions and despite a lot of success early on uh, what will contribute to changing that. Is it the case that societal attitudes need to change um, and, you know, family pressure, is that the bigger factor? Or can workplaces change more um, to accommodate the pressures at, at a certain phase in uh, in women's careers? Both. So mindsets at home need to be changed. Oddly enough, women tend to be the biggest carriers of patriarchy, as you know. Mm. So, you know, the mother-in-law, the mother itself will say, you need to step back, you need to focus on your child's tiffins. Why is the tiffin so bad? You know, why are you not focusing on the food? Why is the nutrition? So oddly enough, at home, 
women can be the biggest you know can be the biggest enemies of a woman uh, but i work to i mean we can't just do lip service we can't say diversity is a hr issue right or hr can come in and you know have these once in a quarter forums where they come and tell women and men what need to be done you need a full buy in for that you need to actually believe that work from home is something that is here to stay and if i have a woman employee who's not coming in five days a week is coming in three days a week and is not drinking uh, beer in a boys club in the evening it's okay she's still very very useful to me the pandemic taught us that you know working from home is a reality manisha it's been fabulous listening to you thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining us on the sketch thank you thanks for having me i really enjoyed talking to you that's it from me for this episode you've been listening to the sketch this episode was edited by manjul paul the producer of this show is deepthi ahuja and our audio engineer our wonderful audio engineer is sanju v abraham you can email us with your thoughts on the sketch at livemint.com for more updates on this podcast follow hd smartcast on facebook twitter instagram youtube and linkedin to listen to more such mint podcasts log on to htsmartcast.com goodbye and thanks for listening this was a mint production brought to you by hd smartcast hd smartcast